Native Circles, a podcast for Indigenous experiences and conversations. Dedicated to Native American and Indigenous histories from Indigenous voices and lived experiences. We talk each month with historians and intellectuals committed to working with and for Indigenous communities, especially to share Indigenous stories. Within a circle of respect, trust, and compassion. Yatse, hello. This is Farina King. I'm with my co-host of Native Circle, Sarah Newcomb. Hi, everyone. And we have a special guest with us today, Crystal uh, Lepsher. And Crystal and I, we actually go back a bit. It's been a while. I feel it. time flies. It's crazy. I always say this. We had met over 10 years ago at um, the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and I was involved with Wong Sheik. That's where I went for my master's in African history. But I always had that strong interest and passion of, you know, my own uh, Diné Native American heritage. And so really tried to be involved with the awesome Native American and Indigenous community in Madison and that part of Wisconsin. And that's where I met Crystal. And she, you were a student at the time, right, Crystal? Yes, I was also in a master's program. I'm okay. working on my educational leadership and policy analysis. Oh, oh, yeah. So that's when you were doing that. So you were a part of Long Sheik and, and the different graduate students there. And I remember Crystal uh, had started a dance group for a bit where we would practice different dances. I was trying to keep up with hoop dancing that I had learned a bit. And you did all kinds of really awesome projects there. So fond memories. And it's fun to be able to reunite on Native Circles. But uh, Crystal is an enrolled citizen of the Little Shell Chippewa tribe and a first-line descendant of Menominee and Stockbridge Muncie communities. I just want to briefly introduce her because we'll take most of the time today of getting to know Crystal, and I'm super excited because of her background and experiences. She holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art. As you know, I've just been so amazed and impressed by her creative and artistic abilities that I see sometimes, you know, on social media. And like she shared, she has a master's in science and educational leadership and policy analysis from UW-Madison. Go Badgers, I have to say. She currently works at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay as the First Nations Student Success coordinator, supporting all Indigenous students at the institution. And this is really awesome. I saw this on the news that Crystal also recently finished her EdD in the First Nations Education Doctorate Program at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And that's where she focused her dissertation on combating racial battle fatigue in Indigenous student populations in higher education. And why that's really awesome news is that program has been featured. There's been some buzz about it because it's a first of its kind, right? Um, Crystal, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that to get us started. Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, when it began, it was the first of its kind. I think there's been a lot of programs expanding um, so maybe a different story now. 
Uh, Mm -hmm. We started as the first cohort in 2018. So about four years ago. What I really like to emphasize is the fact that they decided to go out to communities. And when I say they, I mean, our native faculty at UW-Green Bay thought Mm -hmm. it was vitally important to go out to the tribal communities in the state of Wisconsin to ask them, if we were to do a doctoral program, what would you like to see? And so the community stakeholders had a lot of uh, feedback to share, and the faculty decided to grow the program based on the community stakeholders' discussions, wants, needs, etc. But of course, they have to meet accreditation and those types of things. So incorporating all their background knowledge, as well as the community stakeholders, um, they created the program. And so Coming to the program was a choice that I made that I I heard in some of the cohort that I was part of was that we just saw something so different. It wasn't just an academic space, right? The community said, this is what we'd like to see. And so really entering the program was a challenge academically, but also was a challenge in terms of meeting the needs of your communities. So it was a lot of work and different work. So it's not just writing and doing the research, that's a lot of work. Writing a dissertation was a lot of self-work too. We were able to hear and learn from elders from different communities and knowledge bearers who would come in to teach courses or even just for like a weekend visit. And so that was very different. There were some things that we learned about with intergenerational healing, for example, was a course that we took. And that was something that we understood as If we don't heal ourselves, how can we bring our best selves to our communities to do the work that needs to be done? And so having that space in an academic setting to find potential healing is an amazing experience that I don't hear often in doctoral programs. And so that really inspired me as well in my dissertation and the research that I ended up kind of doing right but we know dissertations are just kind of one little snippet of a story and then we got a whole life trajectory what kind of reaction and interest have you seen from from students in my master's program my focus was native students and the native student experience at a predominantly white institution and then i was like well tribal colleges seem to do a really good job but part of that is that it's culturally connected to the communities like literally the students might be learning about college from their auntie because their auntie is a faculty member at a tribal college and you can't replicate that at predominantly white institutions so i was kind of left with this you can't really carry that model over here but what what can we do and i still work in higher education with native students and how do we how do we help make it a little better we're when we're especially in positions that i'm in i have no control i'm not an administrator i'm just basically an advisor with students who and i do what i can to support them so how can i make a difference and i kept looking into different research and i found racial battle fatigue a concept that was thought about in terms of employees and how they experience the workplace and then that was applied to some faculty of color and a little bit with students of color but not so much with indigenous students i i think i found like maybe one it wasn't a in-depth study maybe it was like part of an article so i said Maybe there's something here that we need to really examine because we know that it's something, it's a phenomenon that we experience. We just know it, right? 
Um, so I don't need to find out if the students are experiencing it. I, I need to find out how they are. And then can we find solutions for that to to help take care of that? Because that's the work I want to do. An educational doctorate for me means we're applying it in a space. And so in my role, what can I do to make a difference when it comes to racial battle fatigue? And like you said, knowing that term and understanding that racial battle fatigue is compounding microaggressions across somebody's lifetime and understanding that it's a long-term issue. So we can't necessarily heal them immediately, especially when I'm not trained as a psychologist, right? I'm not trained as a counselor, but I'm a supportive person. So how do I create spaces that allow students to start their healing journeys or at least be in a safe space? And so learning that the students and the ways they experienced it throughout my research and doing talking circles with them and understanding my background is in art and knowing that I've always used art to help myself think about things, heal from things, process. Is that something we can have? And we know there's lots of research out there about like art-based, you know, healing and things like that. Um, culturally, it is something that we typically learn to do when we're young. Um, I think it's it helps with meditation, things like that. So just putting it together and understanding in my role, I can create these culturally nourishing spaces for students to understand that this is a space for them to breathe when they're in higher education. Not saying that higher education is, you know, I, don't, I, I think a lot about our veterans and I don't want to compare it, you know, right? It's not a war, but it doesn't mean that you haven't had things that have affected you in a profound way, which have affected the way that you think or your healing. And so instead of school being a place where you have to drop part of yourself and live in those two worlds and kind of split yourself and divide yourself, how can we make it a space where you can still be you and find those places to breathe? Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciated when you defined it as microaggressions over a lifetime, because that's really what it feels like. You can't, like in my own life, I couldn't label it as, oh, this one thing happened or these three major things happened. It's like microaggressions, yeah, over my whole life. And what you're doing, like it can't be, <laughs> it, it has so much value in the advocacy work I do and with the writing and speaking I do, it took one person and only one like indigenous individual to give me that like emotional support and acknowledgement of, hey, make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you go slow and just like, like shout out to, um, it was Alicia Harris. She's uh, an assistant professor at uh, the Native American Art History at the University of Oklahoma. And she just just that one time and i kind of checked back in with myself and i was like wow i'm i'm not taking care of myself and i did i started doing like indigenous art and just kind of healing with my people and reaching out to my uncle and um connecting more and it just kind of energized me and helped me balance but it's so beautiful what you're doing like for those students having having them have support at such a crucial time of where they're making such huge decisions for where they're going in life. And yeah, it's amazing. I was also going to say, you know, 
there's one thing of how you are a part of making history. Because when I said, you know, this First Nations education program, the doctoral level, it's, it, you know, we have to be careful when we say it's first, first this or that, because there's a lot of synergy, you know, momentum happening in different places. But you are the first of that school, you know, it's a new uh, program in um, what it's Green Bay, right? Um, It's a new program there at UW Green Bay. And so you're setting this precedent to like breaking the ice in some way. And like you said, at these institutions and schools that most of them are non-native, they are predominantly white in instances, a lot of these different institutions of higher ed, or they were designed with a Eurocentric white you know, concentration, like the foundations of a lot of the schools. And it's heartbreaking. But even when you look at native ed, right, there can be that disconnect of um, what people see as valuable to learn and why because of the broader settler colonial context, like we hear, and I read in, in history, for example, language and policy and in conversations of, you know, natives saying things like, oh, we have to learn the white man's way. And they'll even use that, those exact terms, quotes, like white man's education, white man's school, and that, you know, masculine (laughs) emphasis too, I think of like patriarchy going into that, that is a huge disconnect from a lot of indigenous cultures that are heavily matriarchal or, you know, have a whole different approach of what the values are, what, what matters, the knowledge, language, you know, art, all these different things that we're talking about. I think your, your research then is really a strong alignment with the program itself. And I'm just so fascinated as well by how you are bringing to people's attention battle fatigue, racial battle fatigue, but applying that to Indigenous students' experiences because I've found in conversations with scholars of intersectionality or, um, you know, anti-racism work and different things, um, Native Americans still are often on the margins of a lot of these big research projects or even conversations Uh, right? The something else, um, indigenous creatures, like all the crazy things we're hearing in the news of these misconceptions, whatever, even if people say, oh, that's a slip up, that's a mistake. But that's the point is that it's natives are often on that chopping block of being the mistake or on the margins, especially in higher ed, right there, there's been this language of the asterisks, or the asterisks and, and the 0.1% or that little percent. And so I'd love to hear more from you of some examples of where, you know, what does battle fatigue mean in this work that you're doing? What does that feel like? How do you explain that to people who never even think about Native Americans because they're the asterisks, they don't know how to recognize them, right, in higher ed and don't really understand the Native experience? And I'll admit, you know, as a Native student myself and now a faculty member, a professor, 
Um, I'm still trying so hard to understand what my students are going through. I can't read their minds. And we're all so different. No native is the same. I'm Dene with a very different background. And I'm with students, you know, from Oklahoma tribal nations that are very different from my own. And so there's that as well of like being careful when we say Native Americans in higher ed, we're talking about very diverse students as well. Um, I, I know I can just go on, but I'd love to hear from you more of how you're understanding battle fatigue and then also the cultural nourishment that you brought up too. That resonates a lot with me of it's not just emphasizing that you're recognizing the battle fatigue, but then you're trying to see what do we do about that? Where are solutions for better terms or healing, as you said, and that's not just put a bandaid on it, but these sustainable ways, like it's an ongoing process of healing. So I think what I heard you say is kind of how do you explain the phenomenon to people? So it's going to vary, right? Like you said, students now have a very different experience than when I was an undergrad. Um, I I constantly am talking about, well, back in my day, I had to print a paper off and walk it to my professor's office, you know, like just so different. We couldn't just put it in an email Dropbox, but it hasn't changed. So from my research with the student co-researchers that I worked with, that's what I call them, not participants, they really identified similar things. So it was kind of like a range of ages because I I didn't say you have to be an undergrad. I said any Native student that's on this campus who's currently an active student, I want to hear from you. And similar experiences in terms of here are some things you might resonate with. Being in a class where you're the only Native student and everybody expects you to have the answer. That's pretty common across all racial groups. But... (laughs) We we know, for example, no matter what tribe you're from or community you're from, Native American Heritage Month is all of a sudden when you're put on a pedestal and people are asking you for X, Y, Z. And this includes when you're in K through 12, because I remember when I was, you know, in third grade and somebody asked me if my mom could make one of my people's dishes, right? So putting you in this space where you're like, I don't what? Like, I'm just trying to be me and here I'm supposed to teach people. So at an early age, it starts that conversation. Now, we understand from the research that faculty experience certain things or staff, right? How many times have you been asked to represent the Native voice when it comes to job searches? They need somebody on a committee for a job search, or they need you to help develop the land acknowledgement for your campus, or there are so many asks, like over asks, maybe beyond what you typically studied or whatever, right? So the faculty on our campus, I kind of talked to them about racial battle fatigue, the native faculty, um, and they kind of, on, they all of a sudden opened up their thoughts on how they had been interacting their whole time, right? Because they've been there 20 plus years. So it's like, they have, they kind of have this reputation for saying it like it is, because they have to protect themselves constantly, because there's always been these over asks of them and it's exhausting. So it's kind of hard to be who you are because once you say I'm native, then campus all of a sudden wants to like take everything from you or what we say, you know, colonize everything that you are and try to take over. And if you 
are a young faculty or a young staff member, you're like, what? I don't know who to tell no, right? I'm just going to keep doing these things uh, because it's important. And I, if I'm not there, then I'm the only one. So there's additional pressure on you to represent because then if there isn't a voice, then what happens? So I constantly hear people kind of burning out um, who are doing these things like planning an entire powwow by themselves. They're the only native staff on campus and they're planning it alone in my experience when I was in undergrad we planned a power and we had like six people planning it right and it was still a, a lot of work and I can't imagine it doing it by myself so you're just hearing people who really want our voices heard and so they're doing everything they can but then they're burning themselves out and we see them leave right they might be there for two years and then they're gone because it's a lot and it's again remember it's compounded across our lifetimes so they get into a space where they're like trying to make a difference and really trying to work hard because of all these years of these things happening and wanting to protect our students. And it's hard to say no. And not knowing that racial battle fatigue exists makes you think that it's you or the institution doesn't fit you. And that's true to a certain extent, but knowing that racial battle fatigue exists helps you slow down and kind of remove yourself from the space and examine it and make decisions that way, uh, which means sometimes you have to say no to things you might have normally said yes to. And it's hard because you're like, well, now if I say no, nobody's going to be there. But I think it's really important to stick to, I guess, our values and our principles when it comes to saying yes to things. For example, my campus asked me to be the native voice for a presentation with fifth graders and I had I think it was five minutes total for the three people to talk so I might have had a minute I'm like how is that going to connect they said we we have native students in the in the population of of students and I'm like how is that going to connect with those maybe and and why that matters to me is because I'm not brown so the students are going to see a person who to them visibly looks non-native saying hi you know, and is that maybe it will matter a little bit, but we like to invest more time with those students. And so we kind of went back to their planning committee and said, you know, this isn't the kind of investment that we want to make in building relationships because that's not enough time. So give us alternative options because we'd rather, you know, maybe have those students come into our space in our center and just spend more discussion with them. And I th that's more impactful, right? A student would probably, like you had said, Sarah, earlier, you talked about how that, I can't remember her name, but she said something to you to help you slow down and it helped you think about your own self-care, basically, and knowing that she spent more time with you connecting one-on-one. -on -one, and that's the kind of work that we want to do, not the kind where it's just, we call it like putting a feather on it because that's not going to help, right? That is so true. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> what a great line for that. And this is a perfect time to talk about that. We are actually having our conversation in November, though sometimes there's some, uh, you know, the delay with when we post these episodes. But 
it's bittersweet. November is because of these dynamics that you're mentioning. So what do people do then? What is the response to this? And I do also want to point out another thing while I have a soapbox (laughs) is there's also what's heartbreaking and very frustrating is that you have people demanding um, of Native American and Indigenous scholars or these public intellectuals, public figures, artists, you know, it's like they don't know how to approach them with respect and it becomes put a feather on it, you know, the checkbox or whatever. And it's not a genuine approach of of really making a difference, making an impact because yes, you know, it, people can say that's better than nothing, better than something not happening or somebody not having a conversation. So yeah, I absolutely feel that all the time. I feel really torn where I've been shocked that especially companies that have money, like the, I'm talking like multi-million dollar, billion dollar, even like big companies, they've contacted me or like different people I know, and they invite you to come talk to their employees for some kind of diversity initiative, but they don't offer any kind of compensation for that. And it's gut-wrenching. I don't know. And and again, on the other side of it, especially as a, I don't know if it's women I hear this is an issue with, this is what I've heard in different conversations too. There's that intersectional aspect of it as well of I often feel like, oh, I want to still talk to them because when are they going to hear from someone else? So yeah, what exactly, you know, what you said, it resonates with me directly. I can think of dozens of examples of that. But then, okay, so what do we do with that? What what do you recommend as, as you've been thinking a lot about these kind of questions? So something that we heard in our program, which is not one of our faculty members like literal words but something that she learned from a different scholar and and I can't think of the person's name so forgive me for not remembering this but she always talks about my faculty member Dr. Lisa Poupart talks about keeping your vessel full because if you don't keep your vessel full you can't give your best to everybody else and so remember that when you're thinking about those things when you're making those choices is it going to keep your vessel full or is it going to empty it out? If it's going to empty it out, is that an opportunity that you want to take then? And remember, because I know you have kids too. So we always, it's hard to, as it's challenging as somebody who is a parent and is also a professional. That's part of that conversation too, because we need to keep ourselves most healthy for our immediate children's needs right? We have to take care of them on a daily basis. And so remember them and then also remember the the kids coming behind you. Um, yeah, I, I just think about making those choices, which which could mean that you have to let those opportunities just go and understand that somebody probably will pick it up. And so that can be complicated. Sometimes there won't be anybody, but somebody who's not yet in a space where they feel comfortable saying no may pick it up. Um, So that's complicated for me in certain instances because other people might see it as a great opportunity, Um, but I don't want to judge anybody, right? Everybody takes opportunities that they believe that they should. But I think when you're weighing it, 
It's, is it emptying your vessel or is it filling your vessel? I have said no to so many things <laughs> over the last probably two, three years, four years. I got better at it as I went along, but I noticed when I wasn't saying no, it was my kids that paid for it, you know, where I would just get exhausted and I wouldn't be able to keep up with everything. And so I started to become really aware and then having one person just reach out to me and be like, hey, you know, self-care, go slow and just having that one voice. But another thing I hear from everything you're sharing is that is that acknowledging other people's spaces and acknowledging what what we've carried or what you see in other people is also part of that healing i think in some ways when i'm able to like lift someone else up and pass on what was done for me and just like having that that space and that's kind of what you've started to create too <laughs> like that's what's so amazing is you've got this space where you're having these conversations with people and they automatically know hey we can start like talking to each other about this stuff that part of it have you found that in your own experience of healing in your own experience of balancing that bringing that space is also healing for yourself yeah so one of the things that i i love is to teach not in a formal way but even when i think about like teaching crafts or teaching arts um, sharing what i know is really important to me and so, yes, that is definitely part of my healing journey. And then understanding that I'm here on this earth with certain gifts. And maybe that's part of my gifts is sharing the things that I know, because I know teaching can be complex. Some people are, are, are not able to teach. And so understanding that teaching is a gift and sharing it. And I also wanted to bring up the fact that part of the work that I want to do is also helping communities. Um, so. I've partnered in, in, I think it's next week. Yeah. Next week we are doing like a processing of racial battle fatigue in Menominee community, um, which again is my dad's community. My husband and my kids are also enrolled in Menominee and I have lots of connections there. So I'm working with several of the educators in that area and we are I think we don't have a lot of registrants right now, right? This is new conversation, but we're seeing how it works. Um, we have somebody there who is an elder and she's there on hand to help with like a healing process on the spot. We also have somebody on hand who is a counselor in case things come up um, that are, I'm not prepared to handle anything in terms of counseling or psychology, right? But um, we know that it could come up. It could be a factor. We have plans for like small group processing so that the individuals who attend will be working with each other to think about how maybe they've experienced racial battle fatigue and how it can feed into their work. Um, some of that is that intergenerational trauma. And so we don't want to go into areas that are too deep because we only have two hours with them it's the beginning of the conversation, but this is the kind of work that I think is important too. Something that's not in my bio is that I worked in human resources. It's always been just a space for me to, um, I, I got that job when I was in grad school and now I have years of experience. So now it's one of those opportunities for me. If I need to find a job, I have multiple skills. Um, so I've worked in human resources, both at a university and for a tribe. And for the tribe, seeing certain patterns, seeing 
you know, unresolved issues bleed into how we work together in the workspace and trying to help with that from inside wasn't really working. So maybe now that I'm in a different space and I have those letters behind my name, right? Maybe I can help talk about it from the external space and and help too. Maybe we can all work together to potentially heal and find some more healthy spaces. So it's really about wellness and communities as well. A couple thoughts came to my mind as you're talking. Um, one also is that if there's a resource, if you can't remember a name of one of the sources or a citation that's in your mind or something, you can send it to us and then we can include that for people to look at on, on the website and we link that. So that's just a reminder as well to folks when they listen, they can check out our website too. And we highlight any recommended references, resources, things like that. Um, So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, Then I think when you're talking about a lot of understanding, especially Native American perspectives and lived experience, I'm also thinking there are people who have good intentions or they want to be of support um, maybe there's two sides to that rather even, <laughs> I, I think too, in higher education, cause you know, we're talking a lot about that. Um, there's a lot of mechanics in higher education too. And what keeps popping in, in my head is, you know, people keep wanting to know about money too, and resources. And even when we were talking about when people have to decide what, what fills or empties their vessel. And I mentioned even compensation, like recognition of people's work. And I think that gets at what is reciprocity? What is the relationship? I also want to say, like, I don't think it's just money either. I think it's something deeper than that of um, when people try to connect, is it a form of, like you said, the colonizing Earlier, you talked about this, where higher education, these different academic institutions and and officials or people a part of it, they may be subconsciously or like intentionally, I don't know, but calling it colonizing the Native faculty or the students there, that actually hit it on the head for me. Like it really resonated with me of a lot of the frustrations of where is this battle fatigue coming from is um, people saying that a lot of these academic institutions or different organizations, they still are these colonizing machines. They're toxic spaces for Native Americans and Indigenous people. Um, I mean, even recently, there was an individual I tried to reach out to, um, an Indigenous person, and they said no to me because I was inviting them to be on a committee for an organization that they called racist. And then they went on to say the whole state where I live, Oklahoma is racist, even though they have ties to that state, like with indigenous peoples and things. And it just reminded me of quotes. I can't remember if it was Michael Yellowbird, I think who I heard talking once who said, yeah, I know I'm in a cage, but I'm going to shake it up in here. (laughs) And that hit me um, when 
this recently, this recent exchange conversation had happened or communication. And so I guess the question I'm really grappling with here is how do we communicate with non-natives, like people who are colonizing and may not know they are, or how do we confront them? You know what I mean? Like, it's not just like, oh, we're suffering and us, we have to say no, but how can we communicate with people um, who, to be honest, it's mostly a majority, like a large population of non-natives who don't understand these dynamics. And I bet they might be listening to this conversation and thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't know I was doing that. Or, oh, now I'm not going to ask that native to be on this committee or whatever, because I don't want to, you know, put too much on them. And that's not really like, I worry about that too, you know? So what do we tell them um, about how can non-natives support? And this comes up all the time. Somebody words it in some way. How can I be an ally? What what do I do to support? So I'm not trying to just rehash that cliche. It, it almost is a cliche, those questions. Um, but I hope I'm making sense of, of this kind of dilemma here of I think it's about educating non-natives too. And yet that's a part of the battle fatigue is we're exhausted of, you know, as as Native Americans, we're exhausted of educating other people all the time. And so where's that balance and and what we can say? And I'll I'll add this one thing too, is um Native American studies programs and these different issues of Native studies. I want to say that they are essential and important for everyone to know, not just Native Americans. Yet, a lot of Native studies classes and programs have a hard time having non-Natives take them or filling classes and whatnot. And then there's these institutions that they say if a class doesn't have the butts in the seat, they're not pulling their weight or these programs aren't pulling their weight because then, you know, they are translating things to money of how it makes the world go round, you know, all these kind of aspects. And so there's also a need of support of programs too, right? That um, there's all this need. So I wanted to add that in there because I think it's interrelated and, and it's a, it's some issues I'm noticing. Yes. So um, first going to talk about the fact that my university maybe looks a little different than other UW system schools, I'm going to say, with First Nation Studies programs, because we are kind of in, you know, how administration is like a roller coaster and sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. And so I've heard over the course of the couple of years I've worked here, you know, faculty kind of talking about where we're in a space where our administration is totally open and supportive of our department. And they're just doing things that is really putting us at the forefront and the center of the university, um, which is something that we as a department had an experience for quite some time. So it's kind of like, it's on the up. I hope it never goes down. Um, and we are different in that we're able to experience that right now. So um, there isn't the conversation currently of butts and seats, but I know that is a constant conversation at, in universities 
But I would say my university at this stage is really focused on regional and and working with tribal communities. And so they know that the work that they do with our First Nation studies and with our Native student population is very important to these tribal communities. And so they're really putting, they're really backing us right now. And so we're seeing some great things and conversations happening. Yeah. So there's talks about building outdoor classrooms and, and serious conversations and, and talks about funding. And it's just been really great. And I know that this is different than other institutions. So I'm not sure what to say for those other institutions that are not in these like these wealth of spaces currently, but knowing that our university is really trying to serve regionally because we're not that big UW-Madison institution. We are UW-Green Bay and they're really trying to serve our area. And we are located where there are several tribal communities within an hour's drive. And so they have a lot of those tribal communities kind of really touch base with and make sure they're serving. So we're unique in that way. And if other institutions are near those tribal communities, maybe that is a conversation that they could start to have. And then in terms of allies and how right we don't want to cut people off from from those opportunities right we don't want them to say oh i'm just not going to talk to them ever then because i don't want to get it wrong we need to understand that we're all humans and we're all going to get it wrong we make mistakes that is just part of being human but emphasizing to people that relationships are super important to it and i think that's the key factor compensation's important but I think compensation comes into play, especially when you don't know the people. It's like, well, I don't know you. So we don't have a long-term standing relationship. What's the reciprocity here, right? I'm not saying to like just be friends with people so you can get things from them. But I am saying like an investment in connecting and having that long-term discussion. Oftentimes we see university or other allies just trying to like be like, oh, tomorrow I need a speaker. We've heard from high schools that are like, hey, we need somebody to talk about First Nation stuff because it's Native American Heritage Month. And it's like, I don't know you. I don't know what your students like. I I don't, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. So I can't say yes. Even if they would pay me, it's not something I'm comfortable with. Now, I might have a friend who doesn't have a job right now and they're really looking for opportunities to be paid and maybe they'd be a great person. So I might connect them just because. I think about my friends who maybe want to have those paid opportunities and and I think about the need for the community and so maybe I connect them but sometimes I just say no and leave it at that but in terms of allies again just emphasizing the importance of working on relationships so I mean, you can't tell me that Native American Heritage Month just popped up on your calendar. Like that has been around for how many years now? You know, it's always going to be November some, right? You know, the year always has November in it. So why are you asking a week before? Why didn't you ask way, way before? Start building a relationship. Start learning about resources. I think often what I try to do is I don't want to reject allies because obviously, like you said, we're in a world where there are many non-Native people. So I just try to see what is their goals and then try to help to connect them to resources or maybe individuals who have similar goals. Because sometimes goals 
are just transactional. And sometimes, you know, you ha- you know, somebody who just wants that transaction and wants to make a dollar because they're, you know, looking for those opportunities. So maybe you connect them, but it still takes work on your part. So just being conscious of trying not to drive yourself nuts doing those things, because technically that's not your work either. But in the bigger picture, right, we're trying to make it a better world for Native people in general. And so it's hard to be like, where's the balance here? Don't draw too much from your vessel for those kinds of things. But definitely need to keep that door open for those allies. I had to leave a job once because the ally was wonderful, gave me great opportunities, but their work goals were just so short-sighted and they were trying to work with tribal communities. And I was like, when I left, I wrote them like a, I don't know, 10 to 20 page document that was just kind of explaining that you really need to invest more time with these, building these relationships before you can go in and say, what do you want us to do for you? Or we need this. Here's what we have. I think that's the number one key is just those relationships. Thank you so much, Crystal. I appreciate you sharing all your wisdom and insight. Do you have any uh, resources or anything that you'd like to share with maybe websites for people that are listening, either how to support or where they can learn more about what you're doing or maybe about battle fatigue, any, anything that you'd like to share? I can definitely share links because I'll probably be able to put them together later. Immediately, I am so Wisconsin focused that it's hard for me to be like, oh, yeah, nationally, here's some things. And then it depends on your state. But like in Wisconsin, we have this really cool website. UW-Madison collaborated with the State Historical Society, I think, and PBS or some other organizations. And it's the WisconsinFirstNations.org. And so it's a great resource for teachers or for people who want to learn more and it kind of guides you there are videos there are books there are other websites tribal communities are linked on there so that's kind of a really nice thing to have in our state which I don't know other states have that in terms of national I mean something I guide people to a lot would be just because I work there the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian they have Native Knowledge 360 I think it's called and that's a great resource for allies because there's a lot of educational resources for them to use it's often teachers who are reaching out so to use in their classrooms so that's something I like to share but kind of having not thought heavily about it prior to our conversation I might have come a little more prepared um and I apologize for not being able to say them on air but I can again send more links I definitely think people should explore the concept of racial battle fatigue so I'd love to share some resources for that as well thank you yeah and and even just sharing what you have about Wisconsin and the university and I think even if other places aren't doing that yet like they could lead the way. So having, you know, just spotlighting them and showing what they're doing, because a lot of places want to be able to support but don't know what to do. So this could be just like the start of other universities being able to kind of look and see what they're doing. So no, this is great. Thank you. Yeah, that that's what came to my mind too, is I wanted to point that out is even if you're not sure what other institutions are doing or other states, having these models and knowing that 
other areas don't have to reinvent the wheel and to see what other groups, organizations and communities are doing with tribal nations, indigenous communities, education. I mean, I'm just so glad you mentioned the ongoing initiatives and collaborations and work with communities and tribal nations, First Nations like Menominee, and that you're bringing your research. It's all intertwined. You know, it's not just that you're bringing something either. Maybe that's not even the right word for that. But it's this coming together of people working together. And that synergy, that togetherness is bringing about the healing, right? Like people say, it takes that community and and a people to support each other and realize they're not alone. And that's been a big drive lately in higher education is the language of belonging. You know, it's always something it's been different over the years of inclusivity, diversity, and now different higher educational institutions are talking about belonging. I think one thing I wanted to ask and bring up as we as we wrap up here today and conclude, and of course, we want to hear if there's any other uh, thoughts that you want to share before we wrap up today. But something I, I wanted to share with you due to this conversation is when I thought about racial battle fatigue or or even, you know, all the news that we're hearing lately as well about um, the Indian Child Welfare Act under attack or all these lawsuits for indigenous peoples, there's also this question of sovereignty, right? It's not only racial or understood in terms of racialization in aspects. So I wonder too, if it's, you know, more like indigenous sovereign battle fatigue or like peoplehood battle fatigue of we're struggling to exist as a people that we have with our ancestors and our posterity, you know, the different generations over time. And I think that is what is really, for me, a struggle of burnt out is I've heard students, Native students say this, I've felt this, you know, these thoughts come into my mind of there's a lot of struggles that my family, my kin out there who might be listening or they don't even listen to this because they're trying to get a place to sleep. They're trying to survive still. Like some Native communities, they're not all the same. Some are you know, doing just fine and, and great, you know, thriving but there's some real struggles. And even those thriving, like in the state of Oklahoma, we have some leading tribal nations that have been fortresses, you know, hubs in the community, supporting education and health systems and jobs. And yet they're still like fighting the state, you know, over different rights and sovereignty and aspects, right, that the McGirt case highlights and all these different things. And so even when we say, oh, they're all right, there's still this like, it's the sovereignty struggle, too, that that is a part of it. But to me, it's not just like ideas of government to government or governance. You know, it's also about on the ground level, everyday lives of what I know, like my Native students have faced what I'm personally facing, that I feel like I know other scholars are not facing these same things, or maybe they are in a different way. And I don't 
know how to talk about it. It's kind of, again, like a Debbie Downer. I just saw the SNL uh, clips of where that came in, right? That, that everybody thinks they're having a party, but it's like the native comes in. And if we speak up about what we're really experiencing, oh, wait, you're, you're the downer, you know, you're taking this away. Um, ooh, sorry, feel bad for you. And, and they're not, you know, your problem, not my problem. So I guess I, I wanted to bring this up because have those questions come up to you about that, the, those distinctions with especially indigenous people and, and struggles with sovereignty, peoplehood, even just survival of indigenous peoples today in, in terms of what you mean by battle fatigue and then how to bring that understanding and why it matters. Why should people care? Anyone, whoever they are, whether they're native or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I didn't get into depth in my dissertation on it, but I did talk about the fact that even if your family has never struggled directly with X, Y, Z, right? your family maybe because we are we are seeing native students whose families have maybe three years three generations of college graduates and so they're in a different sphere than you know other communities but even if they've never experienced that we think about the intergenerational traumas that have happened and that's connected to that sovereignty struggle and knowing that those things have happened historically the historical trauma has occurred within your family it lives inside of you. And we know, again, from this research that I don't want to be like, this is, these are specific stories that carry that are carried by my student co-researchers and myself. So I don't want to say like, this is every native story. But obviously, we have issues that happen in these colonized spaces, which is K through 16 education. And we know that the historical trauma also adds into it. So People see you at school, treat you a certain way at school, whether or not your family is also dealing with these issues directly. And we know that this historical trauma shows up genetically in our genetic markers. And so what are our internal struggles based on those historical traumas, which then compounds into those different microaggressions and racist actions, which then becomes that racial battle fatigue, which also then turns into those stressors that create physical and um, physiological issues, which then lead to us having shorter lifespans. So it is all compounded. But I would say that I didn't talk about the sovereignty piece as much as you're, you know, alluding to. So that's another area of research that could be explored maybe a paper that I could like look into. Maybe we could we could co-author a paper together kind of looking yeah. at that piece because I think it's really important. That'd be awesome. Yeah, because I I've just been thinking about how it's also a struggle to just say we exist. You know, it is different. This is a context of this is all native land. What's the story of the land? Like the sovereignty is tied to the land, people, kin. They're all intertwined and in many ways inseparable too well thank you so much and I'm so excited for you know the possibilities watching all your awesome work following you and and the future of, of all these exciting developments and initiatives so thank you so much for your time I mean it, I know 
any moment is precious because there are all these demands. There's so much going on. And so that we really appreciate you, Crystal. And thank you, Sarah, for co-hosting with me today, too. So exit new. Thank you. Why whining? Thank you.